Happy New Year. I hope, I hope that this year is filled with many things for all of you. And rather than tell you what those things are now, I'll let, I'll let the sermon speak for me. Today we're going to be studying the Beatitudes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we'll be looking specifically at the Beatitudes for this reason. With the new year, most people seem to fall in one of two camps. For some of you, it really is a time of joy, hope, and glad expectation. And for others, it can be a, a time of perhaps melancholy or a reminder that nothing really has changed. I mean, what difference does the year on the calendar really make? Perhaps you're reminded of all the things you attempted to do last year and failed to do. Or perhaps you know yourself so well that no matter the goals or resolutions you make for the new year, you have no resolve to actually do them because you know yourself all too well. And if you fall into that camp, it's not just sad and sobering, but it also loses sight of the season we were just in. Because if you truly beheld the Christ at his first coming, the invitation to come and to see Christ incarnate, to recognize that he came to save sinners of whom we, are all, we all are, then the invitation remains. The new year truly is a, a, a new opportunity to be the disciples that Jesus has invited us to be, has called us to be. And so we'll be looking specifically at the Beatitudes because in the Beatitudes, we see both how to live and what to expect between Jesus' first coming, that is Christmas, and his last the Beatitudes serve as both an encouragement and a law to the believer. And by law, I mean a standard by which we ought to live and act and be. Beatitude means, literally, supreme blessedness. And so my hope and my aim with today's sermon is to show you what true blessedness looks like what the life of an actual disciple of Jesus ought to be marked by and to be encouraged in the here and now as we wait for the not yet. And so the question that I want us all to consider throughout the sermon and the question that I want you to continue to ask yourself throughout is this. Do I want to be blessed? Do I want to be blessed? Do I want this year to be blessed? Do I want to enjoy the supreme blessedness that only Christ offers? Let's read. We'll pray and then we'll begin. Turn with me to Matthew 
chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And finally, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Jesus, we trust that you are the Son of God. That you are the one who was sent to make atonement for the sins of the world to all those who believe in your name. And I pray now that we in the room who have trusted you and have entrusted ourselves to you, would we experience true blessedness? Would we heed your word? This sermon came from your very lips. I pray that it would be both an encouragement and a law to us. Please, Lord, come and move in our midst. Have your way among us. Teach us blessedness. Teach us godliness. Teach us to walk in your ways. We are your people for your possession. And it's in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. This is hopefully by all of you considered the greatest sermon ever preached. It came from Jesus' very lips, and it was his first, seemingly first, real address to the crowds. He had been, his ministry had already begun. Um, he had been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptizer. He had been set apart by his father with the coming down of the Spirit and being tested and approved as worthy in the desert, and he had begun teaching and drawing crowds, and he had already called his first disciples unto himself. And this is where we land in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Don't, don't gloss over this. This sets the stage for the entire sermon. This gives us the context and the thrust of everything that's happening. The disciples are drawn away from the crowds. We have Jesus leaving the crowds, separating himself from the world, sitting down, and the disciples are drawn to him. Not the crowd, the disciples. They are drawn away from the crowd 
and are joined with Jesus. So the very thing that marks them now is their allegiance to Jesus. They are no longer numbered with the crowd, but they are numbered by Jesus the Christ alone. In joining Jesus, they have decided to separate themselves from the world, from the crowd, and the life that they know. This is an incredibly important distinction to make. And like I said, it marks the context and the thrust of all of Jesus' words. And yet Jesus addresses both the disciples and the crowd in the sermon. But we almost have two sermons going out at once. And then he begins. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Before I start, though, I will say this, there's much to learn from the Beatitudes, and there's much to study. And so this is a cursory look at them. But I pray that they cause us to be filled with wonder and hope and also to bow in awe at the call of Jesus in the glory of his name. Verse 4, excuse me, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who surrender themselves unto God, knowing that they have nothing of value in themselves. They do not rest on their own righteousness because they know that they have none. They are poor, impoverished in spirit. They have no pride, no hubris, no grandiosity within themselves because they realize they are nothing before God Almighty. And therefore, they are poor. They are in great need. They are in great need. Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. This is the Lord speaking. But this is the one to whom I will look he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word and trembles at my word. That is the one who is poor in spirit, knowing they have not mastered anything and are in desperate, desperate need of grace. They are ones who acknowledge their poverty, their weakness, their failure, and they entrust themselves to God Almighty. And Jesus says this of them, it is only those who recognize their spiritual poverty, those who are poor in spirit, who are truly blessed, for they will be given the wealth of the kingdom of God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It belongs to them and no other. It belongs to them. Do you want to be blessed? Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It is given to the disciples of Jesus to mourn. It's given to us to mourn. Mourning is an outward expression of lament 
And the true disciple will lament at sin, at unrighteousness, at oppression, at injustice, and at evil. The, the true disciple will mourn both at the sin within and the sin without. Furthermore, the disciple is free to mourn. You are free to mourn because Christ too mourned. It is, it is a sign of your great need. It is a confession that life as we know it is not what it could be but that our hope lies in what's to come. Because here's the promise to those who mourn. They shall be comforted. They shall be comforting, comforted. Our mourning is not hopeless because we trust that we will be comforted. Psalm 35 says that weeping may carry through the night, but joy comes in the morning. So we have two promises from the scripture that there will be comfort now, but there won't always be comfort now. But we will get a taste, a deposit of the joy of heaven now. And Christ himself promises to comfort us in the midst of our mourning. And then we have another promise. We see the most beautiful picture in Revelation 21, that he will wipe away every tear that he will wipe away every tear. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Do you want to be blessed? Mourn. Mourn for your sin. Mourn over the corruption that still resides within. Mourn at the corruption in the world around us. A world that hates Christ and his kingdom and seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. Mourn. You're free to mourn, and you ought to mourn. And only then will we be blessed, because we shall be comforted. We shall be comforted. Only those who mourn will know the blessing in the fullness of Christ's comfort. For it is impossible to be comforted when you think you have no need of it. But our mourning serves as a desperate plea for Jesus' comfort to break in and heal our wounds and heal our world. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. The meek are those who have taken up the offer of Christ to learn of him. He gives this offer in Matthew chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, learn of me. It's not just take up my yoke. But learn my heart. Learn my heart. He's gentle and lowly and asks us to learn of his nature. To learn of his heart and to take it upon ourselves. The meek do not insist on their own way. 
nor do they assert themselves over and above others. The meek are gentle, lowly, patient, and understanding. Meekness, you've heard this said here before, meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Jesus was meek. He submitted himself to God the Father and God the Father alone. He surrendered himself to him, to the one who judges justly. He cared not for the judgment of this world, but only that of his Father. Those who are meek do not respond recklessly or violently at every confrontation or threat, but instead exercise complete fortitude and self-control. Meekness is strength under control. It is easy to respond rashly, violently, instinctually to the things of this world. But it requires discipline, understanding, self-control to look at evil in the face and not to act like it. This is the way of Christ. This is the way of Christ. Consider the promise here. It's the meek, the meek that will inherit the earth. Consider again the separation of the disciples from the crowd, from them no longer being identified by the world and yet now associating with Jesus the Christ. In doing so, they are saying his ways are true. His ways are real. His world is the real world. This world is a lie. Because it's only in Christ's kingdom where we will see the meek inheriting the earth. Not the powerful, not the violent, not the rich, not the oppressors, the meek, the ones who looked weak in the eyes of the world, who looked foolish, who looked ignorant and naive, and yet it is they who will inherit the earth. Consider that. Do you believe it? Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be blessed? Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake, for they shall be satisfied. The true disciple will hunger and thirst for righteousness, which is Christ and his kingdom, the standard the very and only true standard of righteousness. Only one who has been born again into a living hope has the taste buds of their soul set on Christ and his righteousness. 
the disciples that hunger and thirst for this righteousness are truly blessed because they shall be satisfied. You will get the desires of your soul should you hunger and thirst for Christ and his righteousness. You are promised that and you are blessed for it. You are blessed for it. In John 7, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He was speaking about the spirit that he was going to pour out on everyone who believed. And so, in this beatitude, in this supreme blessedness, we have a promise for the here and now. It's a down payment of the satisfaction to come when Christ will rule the world in righteousness. But we get to be citizens of that kingdom now. We get to be partakers of his righteousness through his spirit. We get to be conformed to his very image by the spirit that yearns within us. But that's only if we hunger and thirst for it. Set your eyes on the Christ until you hunger and thirst. If you don't feel it, you preach it to yourself and you take your eyes away from the world and set them on the one who is true. If you have been born again, if his love has been shed abroad in your hearts, he has given you taste buds of the soul that savor his name. He has given you eyes to see and ears to hear. Blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness' sake. For righteousness, excuse me. You will be satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Mercy marks the disciple because they understand that they have not received the due punishment for their sin against a holy God. Mercy is different from grace in that mercy is typically given by the one who is the superior towards another or when you are owed recompense from someone sinning against you or perhaps committing a crime against you so you are merciful when despite another's failure or wrongdoing towards you you are compassionate and forgiving. This is mercy. In Psalm 18, I love this. It's, it's, if you really consider this, it's breathtakingly glorious that this is the God we serve. He is so just that nothing gets by him. Psalm 18 Verses 25 and 26 say, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. 
With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. Who is this God? Who repays fairly to each one according to his deeds. Who is he? And thus Jesus teaches, blessed are the merciful. Why? Because you will be shown mercy. This both condemns me and encourages me. Because I'm a proud man. Who at times is heartless and ruthless. And yet, This invitation from Christ is for all of us to look to those we could easily have control over, have power over, to look to the ones that owe us something, according to this world's standards at least, and say, I forgive you. I forgive you. I hold nothing against you. That is the picture of mercy. And the mercy that the merciful will receive is mercy from on high. From the judge himself. The one to whom we owe everything. He will pardon us because we have been merciful. It is simply proof that we have experienced his mercy and his grace from on high Jesus does not mince his words later in the gospels when he says if you do not forgive you won't be forgiven you won't you won't so many people in the church have wondered what's the unforgivable sin you know what's the what's that mysterious thing he teaches (laughs) and yet they miss the simple teaching that if you do not forgive nor will you be forgiven. It should burden us. It should strike us as heavy. And yet, it ought to cause within us the freedom to let go, to forgive, and to extend mercy. And reap the reward of God's mercy pouring down from on high. Blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. The pure in heart. Years ago, I memorized this verse. And to the men in a room, if you're on our men's text thread, that clearly you know I just read it. I don't text on it. (laughs) You were encouraged the other day, yesterday, by both Eric and Ben to make small commitments, small commitments to walk faithfully unto the Lord Jesus. Because big resolves are easy 
to fail. It's easy to lose sight of the goal or to lose momentum and then become despondent and question why did you even try. But there are small things that you can do to exercise godliness and faithfulness in your home, in your workplace, among your extended family, in your neighborhood, wherever it may be. And of those small things, one I would recommend is scripture memory. It sounds harder than it really is. Most of you probably have lyrics to songs memorized really, really easily. So it's entirely possible that you can memorize large portions of scripture. Years ago, I memorized this particular beatitude, verse 8, in a series of other verses throughout the Bible as a reminder of the standard of God's holiness. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Do you want to see God? Do you want to be blessed to see Him? He requires purity of heart. In Psalm 24, starting in verse 3, the psalmist asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord. Sounds a lot like our beatitude, doesn't it? He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Do you want to see him, church? Isn't this the aim of the Christian life? Isn't this the aim? Isn't this the whole point? The pure in heart are those who remain unstained and uncorrupted by the sin that abounds. The pure in heart are not double-tongued or double-minded. All of them is exposed before all of God. They have not lifted themselves up to anything or anyone but God alone. They have not given themselves over to the deception of sin or the corruption of the world, but they have remained unstained, unblemished. Hold this, hold this intention. It's, it's real. The standard is there. And yet, keep in mind the call of Jesus from the very start of his disciples leaving the crowd and joining him. These things are ours with the Christ. In Jesus himself, we have seen the invisible God. This, these series of Beatitudes are just that. They're Beatitudes 
They are marks of supreme blessedness. And so it is entirely appropriate to feel both the weight of the standard of God's righteousness and also the hope that is truly ours because we have been joined to him and he is our righteousness. These beatitudes are ours, beloved. They are ours. But set them in front of you. Let, you, let us pursue them individually and corporately as a church for this year. Let us be pure in heart, undefiled by the sin and corruption that abounds. You know all too well what goes on in this town, what goes on in this state, what goes on in this country, what goes on in this world. You know all too well. But we have been called to Christ. We no longer belong with the crowd. But we sit and rest with Jesus. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. They shall see him. I want to see him. I do. Do you want to be blessed, church, in seeing him face to face? Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. In studying this and really just dwelling on it, I thought about how casual much of the church's approach is to the Beatitudes, but in particular this one. You know, it's not really a joke, but it's, it's very true, and this is an honor to Ben, but Eric and I know Ben and understand him as a peacemaker. He is gifted at it. It is a gift to him from the Lord. And when you think only in that frame, it's easy to think, well, that's for so-and-so, or that's a spiritual gifting of his, or a personality quirk, or whatever you may call it. And yet, this beatitude is so clear. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It is theirs to be called sons of God. It is theirs. Peacemakers are those who make peace. It's not hard to see. But how? And what is the nature of this peace? Peacemakers wave high the banner that declares Christ, who is our peace, has come. Christ, who is our peace, has come. This peace is true peace. It is not simply the absence of division or hostility, war or agitation. In fact, this peace may actually provoke these things temporarily. J.C. Ryle, a uh, saint of old, once said, Peace without truth is a false peace. It is the very peace of the devil. Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. 
It is the very unity of hell. Let us never be ensnared by those who speak kindly of it. True gospel, Christ-exalting peace is first vertical. It first reconciles the sinner to God because Christ is our peace. In Him, in Him alone, atonement has been made for the war that was raging in our hearts against the Creator. His blood has made atonement. His broken body has made peace. And His peace is first vertical. It is between the sinner and God. And only afterwards is it then horizontal towards man. But it must also be horizontal. I would question your vertical peace if you maintain division and hostility with your fellow man. If you are not peaceable or a peacemaker, then I, according to the scriptures, would question whether you really know peace. But the peace that we make in Christ is eternal. For Christ has forever made peace through the blood of his cross. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. They will be marked like Christ is marked. Christ holds, Christ the eternally begotten is the true son of God. That's a title. It's an a position of heir, excuse me, a position of authority. He is the heir to God the Father. And he and he alone is due the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven. And yet, to the peacemakers, you too will be called sons of God. You will share in the inheritance of Christ. But we must make peace. And that peace must be marked by the gospel of Christ. He and he alone is our peace. In James 3, James, the half-brother of Jesus, says that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. A harvest of righteousness. Let's be a peacemaking people. Let's be a peacemaking people. Again, this peace does not settle for lies. It does not bow down to the God of this age. But it stands with its feet firmly planted in the truth of God and his word. And it bids sinners to come and be healed. Come and be healed. But just like with this attitude, it must be seen, excuse me, this beatitude, it must be seen in light of the other ones. This peace also is merciful. This peace is also meek. This peace is also pure in heart. And we're called to make it. Do you want to be blessed, beloved? Do you want to be called a son of God? Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The outcome is just like the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You can even see how they have a similar vein of thought. Those who are poor in spirit, because they are seen as weak and foolish and stupid by the standards of the world, quite often will be persecuted for righteousness sake. But blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Look at the condition here. They're all conditional. You won't be blessed unless you're these things, unless you live by this standard of these beatitudes. But this one is a particular condition in that the persecution is for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. This is a promise and a warning given throughout the New Testament. It is a birthright, if you will, for being born into Christ and being marked with his death so that you too will be marked by his resurrection. Suffering is given to the disciple. There is no escaping it. There is no escaping it. Just a few weeks ago, when we were still in our Advent series, we looked at how our suffering is not just for him or because of him, but it's with him. It's with him because he too suffered. But take note, if you are punished for wrongdoing, for being foolish, for your sin, for making poor judgment, you're not actually being persecuted. Peter says this so plainly in his epistle, his first epistle, that what is it if you're persecuted for wrongdoing? Don't even consider it. It's nothing. But if you're persecuted for good, you're blessed. This beatitude assumes that you are living in such a way that you will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Listen, the world hates God and his rule and his reign. If you live like a citizen of the kingdom of God, the enemies of Christ will attack, but not necessarily over Christ's name. We see this happening in our very country today. There are many enemies of the cross who say, you're allowed to worship Jesus so long as you can't tell me what is right or wrong. You're allowed to worship Jesus so long as you don't bring that into your politics. You're allowed to worship Jesus so long as you don't hold his standard high in a public school. You're allowed to worship Jesus so long as you shut down for however long we tell you to because there's a pandemic raging. Do you see the wording and how particular it is? You will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Often, the world will attempt to slander, curse, defame, insult, and demoralize you over the standard of righteousness that God and his law has established. Blessed are you, though. 
because yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's yours. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mock, ridicule, scorn, slander, beat, and kill you, we'd be foolish to think that that's not a possibility. It's been happening to saints since the dawn of time. Again, those who mock, ridicule, scorn, slander, beat, and kill you for righteousness' sake will only inherit the kingdom of hell, which we know will be thrown into the lake of fire. But blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake because yours is the kingdom of heaven. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. And now we get to our final beatitude. And this one is particularly special. Particularly special. If you think of what beatitude means, which is supreme blessedness, you have all these blessings marked already. And on top of all of those comes this one. And this one is so special. And I th- Jesus gives particular attention to it. He elaborates on it in a way he does not the others. Blessed are you. It's almost as if he's looking at the disciples eye to eye. It's almost as if he's turned from the crowd entirely. Because the former things were an indictment to them. But this truly is for the disciples, to those who belong to him, to those who have been joined to him. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. See, it's expected And as I said earlier, a birthright to all believers to suffer for righteousness' sake. But not all in the history of the church have suffered explicitly for the name of Christ. But to those who will, and we know that the disciples did. He says this. He says this. Rejoice and be glad. (laughs) Rejoice! He says celebrate. He says celebrate. People are making up stories about you and calling you crazy in front of your friends or making lies about you in the workplace because of the name of Jesus. Hey, celebrate. People are persecuting you. They are reviling you. Perhaps they have beat you. Perhaps you have been shunned in some way, shape, or form. Perhaps family members hate you because you want to raise up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. I've heard all these stories. I'm not just making this stuff up. I've heard it and seen it all. Rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Celebrate. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (laughs) So on top 
of this magnitude of blessing that is the Beatitudes. On top of your cup being full of blessedness comes this special, special one that ought to cause you to overflow within. If you should be persecuted on account of Christ, your reward is great in heaven. And you are now being marked (laughs) with the prophets of old. How amazing is that? At the introduction of the sermon, you'll note, hopefully, that I said, the Beatitudes teach us both how to live and what to expect between Jesus' first coming, Christmas, and his last, Judgment Day. Look at all the promises given with these Beatitudes. They all have a future in mind. They all have a result comes when the kingdom of God bears down on this earth. And if we trust the teaching of Christ, if we trust his word, then the world as we know it is smoke and mirrors. The world as we know it believes it's the strong who will inherit the earth. It's the merciless who will come out on top. It's those who tough it up and refuse to mourn who have proven their strength and will have the blessing of comforts in this world. It is those who, like their father the devil, steal, kill, and destroy to get what they want regardless of the wreckage left in their path, they will be the sons of this earth. That's what they think. That's what the God of this world teaches. And it's the example we have. And yet, Jesus says, leave the crowd. Come and join yourself to me. This is life. This is the way of my household This is the way of my kingdom. You guys can come on up. And so, a few questions while we close. It's a question we've been asking this whole time. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to know a blessing the blessings that are real and eternal, that carry on into eternity, that forsake temporal, trivial blessings and comforts to attain that which is real. Do you want to be blessed in that way? Do you want to be named with Christ? Does the world know you belong to him? Have you left the crowd to go sit and rest with Jesus and abide in his righteousness? It is given to us not only to believe in Christ, 
but to suffer for his sake. It is our birthright, church. If we want to be marked with him, if we want to be blessed, if we want these things, we must live counterculturally. We must live not just as citizens of this country, because we are, but primarily as citizens of the country to come, the heavenly country. We must not resign ourselves to only praying for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done, but we must also live as faithful subjects of that kingdom now. As I said earlier, the world is full of smoke and mirrors. It's an illusion. The wealth of the elites will burn up with them. Do you believe that? The strength of nations will crumble at the power of God and his kingdom. The world as we know it is not here to stay. And this is the point of the Beatitudes. This is the entire picture that Jesus is painting. Come and see the real world. Come and rest with me. Live as I live. Learn of me, my heart. And live faithfully and fruitfully as citizens of the kingdom of God. Will we as a church, as disciples of Jesus, commit to him this year? If you have but one resolve, may it be this, that you commit to him. Will we do it for this year and all the years to come, no matter the cost? Be blessed, church. Let's pray. Lord, it is only you who can offer supreme blessedness within. No matter the cost, no matter the pain and the suffering, no matter the assaults from within or the assaults from without, you have promised us as your people supreme blessedness. We have a peace that the world cannot know. I pray that we would entrust ourselves to you. You are the true judge, and as such, you will judge the world in righteousness. You will condemn the wicked, and you will establish the righteous as your inheritance forever. We trust you, and I pray, I plead, Lord, that as your people, we would walk as you walked, that we would banner you high, that we would confess our weakness and our desperate need for more of you and less of us. Jesus, would you please help us? We want to see your face. Thank you, Lord, for loving us to the point of death, even death on a cross. We trust that by your wounds, we truly are healed. It is in your good name, I pray and ask all these things, Jesus. Amen.